0: Hey, this is Joe Bakomotsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer podcast. Listen, it's a crazy time that we live in, isn't it? You know, we've got the COVID-19 pandemic around us. So what do you as a cancer survivor, as a cancer patient, or as a cancer caregiver, what do you need to know about this new virus? Well, today I'm talking to Raina McIntyre. And Reina is an expert in biosecurity, she is an expert in vaccinology and epidemiology, and she conducts a lot of research in this area. And so here she's going to tell us exactly what we need to know about the virus and how we can lower the risk of getting the infection. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Reina. I want to ask you first, you know, you are (laughs) our premier expert in biosecurity. Tell me, what took you by surprise with this pandemic?
1: Well, I think, you know, it was a new infection. So it was very much a rapidly unfolding situation where we didn't understand very much at all about the virus. So back in February, we were even asking the question, is it contagious from person to person? Because we were just getting those reports of the severe pneumonia cases that didn't seem to change much over January. And so uh, a lot of people thought it wasn't actually contagious. Um, So that's how quickly things have changed and how much the information has changed. And then the second thing we started talking about is whether or not it could be transmitted without any symptoms being present. And then we were asking the question, can it be transmitted without symptoms? You know, can people who don't have any symptoms pass the infection on to other people? And for a long time, a lot of people were denying that and saying, no, it's not possible. But it became clearer and clearer over time that it was possible. So initially people had thought maybe it's like SARS-1 and SARS-1 was not transmissible without symptoms. You, you only transmitted it to someone else if you had symptoms and generally pretty full-on symptoms. So that was a big difference with SARS-1, that this is an infection that can be spread with, with, by somebody who's got no symptoms whatsoever. And the other thing that um, made it different to SARS was that the number of cases increased really exponentially over time uh, and far surpassed the number of cases of SARS within, like, the first month. You know, by the end of January, we had more cases of, of COVID than we had of SARS, and it was clear this was something much, much bigger. So all of these things, I think, you know, it took everybody by surprise. It's something quite unique. In terms of the experience of people who are alive today, nobody has lived through anything like this with such momentous impacts on society, on economies, on travel, on trade. It really is unprecedented.
0: Yes, absolutely. and And uh, I know you do a lot of research into kind of how uh, how we respond to kind of epidemic breakouts. And it seems like uh, I guess our entire civilization was completely caught off guard. You know, when the virus came in, we've got like our governments, scrambling over to figure out the response on I guess, on scientific level as well. They're trying to figure out you no know, either vaccine or antivirals in order to deal with it. So why do you think we we really were caught off guard in such a way?
1: Well, every country does pandemic planning. You know, we have stockpiles of medications and non-pharmaceutical things like masks and respirators and we have plans. But, you know, the plans are only as good as what knowledge we have. And this is something completely new that's very different from influenza and it's different from SARS-1. So I think there were elements of it that really took people by surprise and the the new information is coming out every day. You know, we're learning more and more about this disease. For example, with SARS-1, if you recovered, you were pretty much back to normal. But with this disease, it's now very clear that there are long-term sequelae for people. So it can cause strokes, heart attacks, blood clots in the leg that lead to amputation. Um, there's reports of people who've recovered who are not cognitively normal. They've got you know impaired mental um, capacity afterwards. Whether it's due to you know small degrees of stroke, we don't know. And there's this. Um, syndrome in children with um, like a vasculitis syndrome, which is similar to a disease called Kawasaki disease. And, you know, the, the, it's very, very complex. And I think we don't fully understand the long term impact it's going to have on survivors.
0: Wow, that's, that's pretty shocking, right? Uh, especially, you know, like those developments on the after effects of people who are getting this virus. But, you know, like uh, right now we are, f- we are focusing on, on tackling this new virus and, and, and the disease, the COVID-19 on every level in terms of, in terms of research. And in, in, in our hospitals, there's so much uh, att- attention focused on it, rightly so. How do you think it will impact other areas when it comes to, for example, you know, oncology research or or cancer treatment or clinical trials?
1: Well, obviously, it's had a huge impact on ongoing clinical trials. A lot of clinical trials, including oncology trials, have had to be stopped because of the impact on hospitals of the COVID pandemic. And, you know, generally, non-COVID research has been uh, significantly affected. Either it's been stopped altogether or slowed down um, substantially, both in hospitals, and also in universities. A lot of universities have put a freeze on a non-COVID research.
0: So w- what measures do you think we can realistically take to lower the risk of infection, especially if you feel more vulnerable or you're at risk? Perhaps you are going through cancer treatment right now, or perhaps you're living with cancer. What can you do uh, like in just in terms of everyday life to lower the risk?
1: So there's, you know, only a limited number of things we can do. One is obviously don't travel. Travel is extremely high risk. Airports, airplanes, all of those things are extremely high risk um, because you're, you know, crossing paths with lots of different people from different places. The aircraft itself might be contaminated. Secondly, uh, you know, try to practice the social distancing in your life as much as possible. So really avoid going to very crowded places, and if you have to go to crowded places, try to maintain that spatial uh, distance of 1.5 metres. It does make a difference. You know, for example, people might be in the habit of just popping down to the shops every day or every two days for whatever they need. Try to be more organized and minimize the number of times you have to go into those environments. So try to do it once every two weeks if you can, or do online grocery shopping. And the other thing is, I guess, in terms of social gatherings, there is a risk with large gatherings of you know parties and so on. I think trying to manage that risk and also who's coming in and out of your household. And then simple things like masks and disinfection. So disinfectants are very effective against. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. So, um, you know, keeping your house clean and frequently touched surfaces wiped down with disinfectant on a regular basis does make a difference. I was involved in a study that's um, been accepted but it's not published yet, which looked at that and definitely household disinfection and also using a mask in the household made a big difference. It reduced the transmission of the virus. Masks are not recommended in the community at this stage in Australia, I guess because we don't have a very high incidence of disease. We've got fairly low case numbers, which is good news for people living with cancer. So it's not different from living in New York, where your risk would be much higher. But if you're in a high risk group, there's certainly justification for wearing a mask. If you've got to go to hospital, for example, for an appointment, it might be an idea to wear a mask. It'll give you some protection um, in, in the hospital environment or even if you've got to go to your doctor's surgery, it might be an idea to wear a mask. Those are, healthcare settings generally would have a higher risk than other kinds of community settings.
0: Cool. And what is your preference in terms of masks? Is, is, is there a particular type of mask that's better than another?
1: Sorry, I forgot to mention hand-washing. Of course, hand-washing is really critical um, and doing it properly. So I'd recommend watching one of those videos on how to wash your hands properly. Just soap and water is enough. You can carry sanitizer with you if you don't have access to running water. Uh, So basically the respirators, which are like the P2s or the N95s, give the best protection and then the surgical masks and the cloth masks after that. The cloth masks really... There's not a lot of evidence around, but I think you can make a reasonably good mask if you follow a few design principles, like um, using a more water-resistant material, like a synthetic fabric, like polyester or rather than cotton or a cotton-polyester mix. Having multiple layers, so three or four layers of a mask. Um, trying to design something that provides fit around the face and so on. If you follow those design principles and wash it every day, so you don't keep reusing the same thing without washing it, it should be protective. The other important thing to remember is that we don't want there to be a shortage for our healthcare workers. Um, Really, the respirators, the P2s and N95s should be reserved for healthcare workers. In the general community, I think there's now reasonable availability of surgical masks. You can buy them at most chemists, and you can buy them online. So I think a surgical mask is a good option.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and so you know, at the moment in Australia, Rena, we seem to have a you know a pretty good control around the COVID nineteen spread. Do you think it is it is it likely that we could get a new wave of infection to happen later?
1: It's possible because most people in the country haven't been infected, so most people are still. You know, non immune, and we don't even know if you get immune, lasting immunity from infection. You know, there's a question mark about whether you can get reinfected. So, yes, there's always a possibility. It really depends on how we manage things from here on. If we keep the borders closed, it's going to be much easier to keep the case numbers very low. If we open the borders, it will be more challenging, but still not impossible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know, Renny, you look at a lot of horrific diseases like smallpox and all sorts of wonderful things that are out there. How does this virus, the, the novel coronavirus, how does it compare to to those diseases in terms of a global threat?
1: I mean, I think the proof is in the pudding. It's ravaging a lot of countries in the world and we're seeing high income, wealthy countries you know, completely at the mercy of this disease. Just look at the United States, look at Europe, uh, the UK, and I think that's that's what we have to go on. On a We can talk about on a theoretical level, is this disease worse, is that disease worse? This is certainly a lot worse than influenza and it's probably worse than the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. It's probably similar in terms of the case fatality rate to SARS-1. You know, smallpox would have a higher case fatality rate, but this is causing major impact on the health and well-being of people around the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Raina. And, you know, given that we have different vaccine technologies in the race right now, you know, there's probably around, you know, 90-odd candidates out there or perhaps more, and there's some that are, you know, entering human trials as well. Which one do you think is at this stage or which ones are likely to be a success? and? would they be viable options for people who might be going through cancer treatment or perhaps cancer survivors, people with potentially compromised immune systems?
1: Yeah, so there's a number of drugs that look like they could have potential, including remdesivir, there's more nuanced data on lopinavir, ritonavir, and we're still waiting on the results of some big clinical trials to come out, also waiting on the results of the trials of hydroxychloroquine, even though the initial data don't suggest much of an effect. Uh, it's too early to say, but I think any, any um, decision on, you know, if, if a cancer patient develops COVID-19, their treatment needs to be managed by their oncologist and the infectious diseases expert looking after them together to make sure there's no treatment interactions and other issues.
0: Yes, and what do you think it's, it's likely that we could get a vaccine?
1: I think, you know, 12 to 24 months is the time we're looking at and that's a very rapid time frame for a vaccine. Um, in the meantime, we just have to manage it with all the other measures
0: and would this vaccine be safe for everyone, including people who perhaps uh, may have been through cancer?
1: It depends on the type of vaccine. There's about eight different kinds of vaccines, methods being used to develop vaccines. One of those is a attenuated live virus vaccine. Um, generally, live virus vaccines are not recommended in people who are immunosuppressed or whose immune system is compromised. So if it's a live virus vaccine, it probably would be contraindicated in um, cancer, not necessarily in all cancer survivors, but certainly ones who are on drugs that might be um, suppressing the immune system. But the other types of vaccines, you know, would be safe, much safer, but really it's too early. We haven't seen any data on safety or efficacy as yet.
0: And Renda, if you were today given the power to change things, you know, when it comes to dealing with the pandemic, what would you do?
1: Well, if I had a time machine, I'd go back in time <laughs> and act on that little outbreak that started in Wuhan and stamp it out before it spread around the world. That's the mistake with epidemic diseases. People use the word epidemic all the time. There's an epidemic of obesity. There's an epidemic of drug use. There's, but that's not the, the correct terminology means that it's a disease that rises very rapidly in time, exponentially, over days or weeks. So, you know, seeing uh, an increase in cancer over a decade is not an epidemic. That's an endemic disease with increasing prevalence. And a genuinely epidemic disease increases exponentially and you can lose control of it within a matter of weeks. So the importance of acting really early cannot be stressed enough. You know, if you act early, you can stamp out an epidemic. That means you've got to detect it early, you've got to report it early, and you've got to jump on it and stop it. Right? And we've seen the consequences of not doing that.
0: Yes, and what about what's in the place that we are right now where it seems to be you know rapidly out of control? Is there anything that you know we can do globally to get some measure of control back into the situation?
1: Well, I think we have to focus on the places where it's out of control, and that would be you know in the United States and in Europe. Also focus on some of the countries where surveillance and diagnostics may not be as strong, like in uh, low-income countries um, where we can identify cases and quantify actually where the transmission is happening. And I think you know, again, we've seen that um, national interests and and kind of even subnational interests have overridden global health in a big way. You just have to look at the United States where, you know, states are fighting with the federal government and, you know, people within states are fighting with each other. There's protests. That's an example of, you know, how not to do it. And you know, so we can't even begin to talk about global health and global efforts, you know, when, when we're seeing within nation problems in responses.
0: And earlier you touched on a, such a diverse range of different reactions to the virus, you know, with the ranging from people who may be, you know, asymptomatic to potentially people who get, you know, things like cytokine storm. Or, 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 you know, potentially all these after effects, like cognitive after effects, this potentially uh, disorder that, that uh, can affect children. Is that a normal thing for a virus to, to do, to have such a diverse range of reaction in people?
1: No, no, this is very unusual. Um, The whole effect of this virus is really very different. You know, in fact, what it does to the immune system is um, very different from influenza. It causes, it kind of like just knocks out the T cells in a major way and kind of causes this um, non-specific kind of dysregulation of, of all the T cells. And it's very different to flu, which has a much more specific immune reaction.
0: Cool. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Raina. And uh, hopefully we can uh, get a better grasp on uh, on this disease in the coming months.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good news in Australia anyway, that we've got very low case numbers.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Okay. Thanks, Joe. All the best.
0: Hey, my friend, this is Joe Bakmutsky, host of the Simplify Cancer podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, because I know that this is an especially crazy time for all of us. And if you're struggling a little bit right now with the lockdown, with the COVID-19 pandemic, then I I urge you to check out my 14-day lockdown challenge. How to stay sane, steady, and strong in the time of pandemic. You know, each day I'm sharing what I've really learned from cancer about dealing with isolation, with worry and fear. And each day we're gonna tackle a different topic. So if that sounds interesting to you, then go to 14day, that's one 14day lockdown also, if you're a cancer patient who's going through you know, potential cancer treatment right now, then I urge you to go to simplifycancer.com and check out some of the free tools that I've created to kind of help you out along the way. If you go to simplifycancer.com to the tools section, you're going to find out the outcome map, which is, shows you how to really work through specific worries, like milestones, like, like a checkup, or maybe some specific symptoms that you've got, like an ache or a pain, and you're to figure out what to do next. It's a really simple tool that can help you to really work through that. There's also online community guide, which is how to really find the top three online communities for most cancer. So you can really check in with people who've been through it before, like connect with them, ask questions. They're gonna be there for you because they know exactly what it's like. You know, what to expect from treatment and beyond. Also, I've got a PDF called Your First Oncologist Visit Checklist. And here I've got all the questions that you want to be asking your specialist. So you can just print it out and take it with you. There's room to make notes. And also make sure that you can kind of prompt the conversation and make sure that you really don't forget. The other thing I've got for you is the testicular cancer support kit. Oh, I've done a whole bunch of videos for you on the things that you can really, you know, find out about dealing with testicular cancer from the perspective of someone who's been through it. This is not medical advice. This is just from my personal experience of dealing with cancer, things that, questions that you might have about fertility, about having sex, all of that sort of stuff, like how does it feel, and guide you along the way and hopefully make your journey easier. So check that out as well. And speaking of my experience, you might also want to check out (laughs) Simplify Cancer. Man's Guide to Navigating the Everyday Reality of Cancer. This is the book that I wrote talking about the four main challenges that all of us guys must overcome when we're dealing with cancer. If you're interested in seeing what that's all about, go to simplifycancer.com. The links are pretty much everywhere on the website, and you know, I'll tell you more about it. Other than that, thanks so much for tuning in. I'll talk to you next time.